Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Accidental Activist, presented by Mercedes-Benz. Before each episode this season, as a part of the I Am Mercedes campaign, we'll be profiling different young women named Mercedes who are all chasing big dreams. My name is Mercedes. I am 17 years old. I am very passionate about sustainable fashion. There are a lot of issues that exist in the fashion industry, one of them being sustainability. Fashion is the like second most polluting industry. It creates a fifth of global wastewater and a tenth of global carbon emissions, which is quite a lot. Two-thirds of garment workers are women. They are overworked and underpaid. I'm just hoping that that can change where women's work and labor is valued to where they're getting paid living wages but still have good lives and be healthy. To me, being a part of this I Am Mercedes campaign means a lot because I'm really grateful to have been given this platform and just have been selected by such a large brand that I've obviously been associated with my whole life because of my name. Thank you, Mercedes, for sharing your story. I wish you the best as you continue to pursue your passion. And now, on to this week's episode. Because I can tell you like, oh, the oppressed woman, oh, the terrorist, oh, the like oil-hungry airman, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm so uninterested in talking about that. My journey put me in this weird forefront where my scarf became a companion in a way, but it also became like something that was always scrutinized the importance of never drawing a false moral equivalence. And that's when, like, everything clicked in my brain. Hypothetically, could you ever foresee a time where you chose not to wear the hijab? That's the first time anyone has ever asked me that on a podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Aisha Sasei, and welcome back to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover how an accidental turn of events can spark one's passion to change the world. Today, I'm talking to journalist Nu Tagori. Nu always knew she wanted to tell stories. Growing up, she had one shining hero, Oprah Winfrey. You're trying to dim that light yeah. in your own home yeah. so that you can exist in peace. Yeah. At 4 p.m. every afternoon, she was glued to the television watching the master at work. At just eight years old, she already knew she wanted to be an interviewer with the discernment and empathy of Oprah. Noor grew up as a Muslim Arab American in a Libyan American family in a conservative white majority town in Maryland. Her decision to start wearing the hijab was made as a teenager, and there were plenty of people who warned her it was the wrong decision to make because it would shatter her dreams of becoming a journalist. But it clearly hasn't. Nor has built a career on sharing the kind of stories that are very often marginalized or ignored altogether. Her documentary, The Trouble They've Seen, The Forest Haven Story, 
underline the discrimination and abuse mentally disabled people face in a Maryland facility. Her 2018 podcast, Sold in America, provided a glimpse into the sex trade industry in America. It won a Gracie Award for Best Investigative Series. Her podcast, Rep, explores the American media's portrayal of the Muslim community post the 9-11 attacks and the ripple effects that representation has had across our culture. This fall, Iranian Muslim women captured global attention as they risked their lives in protest against the mandatory wearing of the hijab and state-sanctioned gender inequality. With their story still fresh in my mind, I was eager to hear Noor's perspective and how we can tell each other's stories in a more complete and compassionate way. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Noor Tagore. Notaguri, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Aisha. It's great to have you here with us. As someone who wears the hijab, I feel like we have to start with this moment we find ourselves in, and I'm specifically referring to events in Iran, where we see women and girls protesting against the strict dress codes, the mandatory hijab rules there in that country. When you see these pictures that have flooded our feeds and our TV screens, what goes through your mind? Well, the first time I heard about the story of Masa Amini, there was something that was different. And it was rooted, I believe, in it's such a tragic incident, but it was also an incident that was carried out by what is called the morality police. And I kept trying to like figure out why that felt so activating for me. And it was because I realized the morality police, just because this one was made official by a government, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist everywhere. And that the morality police doesn't exist in our families and our friends and our communities and our schools and our government. And so it felt so heavy. And I've been thinking about this a lot because even in the history of Iran, there's been a back and forth with the hijab, whether it was mandatory or whether it was actually mandatory that you would not wear it. Mm -hmm. Like that also is in Iran's history. And to me, it always comes down to this like fight for choice. When I see the images and when I see the conversations that are happening, I'm realizing that it's not about sides. It's about, are you someone who is actively fighting for people to be able to choose what they do with their bodies, period, end of story. Like that's all it is. And the hijab is just one example of that choice. Of course. Like it's like choosing to cover or not to cover. Like I had this huge breakthrough yesterday, really big breakthrough. And I started like speaking to myself in the mirror. I was like giving myself an affirmation, but like something came through me that was very like adamant that how I choose to cover, whether I choose to cover or not, really is no one's business. And the fact that like I may choose to cover my hair if I choose to apply spirituality to this practice, to this act, then that's for me to do. But to everyone else, it's no one's business. Like to, to you, it should just be like 
a piece of fabric that covers my hair.、Mm-hmm. That's how personal covering is for me. And what does it mean to you? Just so I'm clear, because obviously it has different meanings to different people. So covering to me is a daily choice. The journey that I'm on with it right now is because I will say like. With everything that's been happening in Iran, like hearing about the morality police, I really started to think about like, how do I feel about this? Like, how do I feel personally about like my daily choice? Do I feel like it's one hundred percent my choice? Do I feel like there's pressure for me to cover? And I would be lying if I said that there was never any pressure. Of course, there's pressure that exists, especially where does that come from? The community that I grew up in and my family. And these are conversations that we're actually actively having in my family right now, which is so amazing because I don't think that. The pressure is something that was ever always. It, it was verbalized. It's more like just expectations, and unfortunately, that like collides with the fact that in the U.S., Muslim women's bodies have been so politicized that it's really hard unless you do the work to understand your active decision making around covering, because it is an influence. Like I actually just found. That this morning, I had a conversation with Adam, and Adam's your husband. Adam's my husband and business partner, and all of the things, and we have conversations around this a lot. But I just casually checked in with him today, and I was like, you know, today I choose to cover, and like that's my choice. The reason I'm choosing to is because I had this conversation with a friend who's Catholic, and we were having a back and forth conversation about spirituality and religion, and like. It can be for us, like even though our faiths have been weaponized or whatever it is. Like at the end of the day, faith, especially like the faith that I choose to practice, always started with the goal of love, peace, and humanity and connectedness. I think I felt angry that people politicized our bodies and and surveilled us for so long that those characteristics appeared in the people in my communities as well. Could you ever foresee? And I realize the limitations of that question because we only know what we know now. But hypothetically, could you ever foresee a time where you chose not to wear the hijab? That's the first time anyone has ever asked me that on a podcast. But I think it's an interesting timing because maybe who knows? Like I really don't know, and that is so okay. Like I'm completely taking that pressure off myself. Because I realized, like every single day is a choice. Growing up, I always thought I was never going to wear it, and everybody in my family like always assumed that I was never going to wear it. How old were you when you you chose? I was fifteen. I mean, it was the same year actually that I got my first job in journalism. I started working at a newspaper when I was fifteen years old, right after I started covering. And so my journey put me in this weird forefront where my scarf became a companion in a way. But it also became like something that was always scrutinized, like from when I was a kid. I'm realizing all of these things now, which is why it's a little bit difficult for me to talk about it because I'm still processing these thoughts. But I'm never going to say that I'm going to wear it forever, and I'm never going to say that I'm not going to wear it forever. But I think that what I know for sure is that whatever choice that I make, which is a daily choice, it's a choice I make every day, every second, whenever I choose to put it on and leave my house, it's going to be a choice that I make because I want to. And that is what feels true to me. So you touched a little bit on explicit or implicit pressures 
from family and community regarding choices. I think we all have those, back to the point you made about us being policed, all of us, in some ways, big and small. What stands out for you from your childhood, growing up in a town in Southern Maryland, Virginia, a Muslim Arab American, you've hit some of these notes that existed in the background. Tell us about that. I was always like a really curious kid. I asked questions since I could speak. And so I had a sense of who I was from a very young age. And I was very lucky and blessed that my parents saw that spark in me of curiosity and they really nurtured it. And also I was aware that my family was different because my mom was the only woman who wore a headscarf amongst all of the moms and stuff. So I felt like a very strong embarrassment towards that. And we've talked about it all the time. She's so gracious about it because she's like, yeah, I didn't even know you felt that way, but like that totally makes sense. But yeah, as a kid, I felt a lot of that, this shame of being different. And now as an adult, I'm realizing that it wasn't unwarranted. Like years later, I wrote a piece about this, but the high school that I went to had like a world history class and they were teaching religion. And one of the assignments was like an assignment on Islam. And they were, it was questions like about women's rights and practices during war, like ethics during war and stuff like that. And there was like a group of parents who protested against this assignment because a father quote caught his daughter doing this assignment. And that's when it really clicked to me that like, the way that I was feeling wasn't unwarranted. My child self knew who my parents were was seen as different or foreign. That exists in my childhood, but it's like, I don't hold that heavily. Like I hold that with such light now because I'm like, these are just little things that made me who I am. And I have so much grace for that kid version of myself and so much grace for the kid version of my parents then because they were also young. Can you see the thread from that difference to today, which helped propel you to this place of being a journalist and storyteller with a specific focus on marginalized communities? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because one of the breakthroughs that I had recently about hijab when I, on one of the days that I was like questioning more of why I wear it or what, like how it's been a companion to me was that I know That one of the reasons, one of many reasons that I was meant to wear it during the years that I did was to gain this radical sense of empathy, radical sense of empathy, because it really became like this superpower that I had where I could interview, I could talk to anyone, like anyone, people who thought they hated me, I could talk to them and I could connect with anyone. Because there was this common ground of, I know what it's like for my story to be misrepresented, and I will never do that to you. And I know how to approach it. Because my philosophy early on in my journalism career that I still carry till now is, how is the way that I cover the story going to impact the person or the community that I'm talking about? And that came from a place of like seeing directly whether it was me or people in my community being harmed based on how stories were told. So this dance that I've done with like just becoming the journalist, the storyteller, the question asker that I am today 
is all rooted in this radical empathy that I would not have otherwise had. I wouldn't have been able to have empathy with the lens that I have now had I not had these experiences because I wouldn't have known to this extent of what it what it is like to be somebody who is incredibly misrepresented. If I'm being transparent, like I could easily get away with just looking like another white girl. I carry that so deeply and I honor that because this empathy has also given me the space to connect with my ancestors. So when you ask me like, why do I choose to wear it now? Like I think a huge reason that I do that is because it's a way that I've been connecting with my ancestors and the ones who are still alive. Like I was in Istanbul last week and my grandmother is there right now. And I asked her, I was like, when you were younger, did you ever feel pressured to wear it? Who was the first person in the family who started wearing it? Because she didn't start wearing it until she came to the US after having children. So it's been this like incredible connecting tool, almost like a way to reclaim the power of choice because the power of choice is the path to freedom. I'm so moved by what you just said about the connection to ancestors. Half my family's Muslim, the other half is Christian. That's like my husband. <laughs> is it really? But I realize why I firmly still keep my foot in that space of Islam. It's because of its connection to my family. That really spoke to me when you said that and talking to your grandmother and, 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 and pulling the pieces together. But you speak of seeing your mother cover, obviously your grandmother, when she came to the States, took the hijab. These are personal family examples. Externally, though, in the wider world, growing up where you did, these days we talk increasingly about the importance of representation and visibility. Was there anyone for you to look at? No. Nobody that I looked up to. I mean, my biggest inspiration growing up was Oprah. When did it start to go wrong? And then people like Lisa Ling or Christiana Mampour. People are interested in entertaining but substantive storytelling on television. I now say truthful, not neutral. Barbara Walters. My idea of hell is that I finish doing an interview and someone says, did you ask such and such? And I mm -hmm. think... Sold out O'Brien. I like uncomfortable it. and awkward comments. Yeah. None of them are uh, Muslim Arab American. <laughs> yeah. I think Oprah was like the closest thing that I felt to like, if she can do it, I can do it because she was the first in so many and she broke so many barriers. I will say like, it wasn't really until social media kicked off that we had access to seeing so many more people who quote looked like us, but that's also because we demanded space. And so I was able to create my own platform. Like if there, if social media didn't exist, I probably wouldn't be where I am today, which is having my own production company, producing my own series and realizing, oh, I don't need a network. I don't need a three-letter agency. Like I am the three-letter agency. Like, and I have it. And guess what? It's called at your service because this is how we tell stories rooted in service, rooted in love, rooted in connection, rooted in empathy. Like that really was just the divine timing of it. It was how I, when I was coming up in my career, it's what led me to doing like my latest body of work, my latest investigative series rep, which is like the most important work that I've ever done was because like for so long rep, like behind the scenes was called the representation series because I had this question of like, how has the misrepresentation or the lack of representation of Muslims and Arabs in American media impacted American culture and society as a whole. And that was my entry point question. That's what I thought it was all going to be about. And it was going to be like this whole journey of figuring out what that 
actually looks like. And it transformed into this healing investigation where I actually was able to examine what is my relationship with the stories I tell about myself, with the stories I tell of others, and what is our collective relationship with the concept of truth and objectivity. That is where my brain is at right now and my heart is at right now. And it has completely changed how I look at representation. I don't think that representation is enough. And when you say that, what do you you mean? Representation and are you saying representation and visibility aren't enough? What's the next step? There is an oral historian that's featured throughout our series. His name is Zahira Lee. And he talks about like what we need in storytellers. Representation is one thing. Great. But further than just representation, we need authenticity. Is this story authentic to you and your experience? We also need intimacy. And that is where this concept of true representation that we're we're aspiring to exists with authenticity and with intimacy as well, where we are actually actively building trust with people. We have an idea of like where they're coming from because we're reflective enough in our own experiences. To be frank, it's like the conversations that we have oftentimes around representation just like end at this like idea of DNI or diversity and inclusion or some, what I would I often call diversity and exclusion because you can feel the check mark and I'm sure you've experienced this but like I know when I'm hired as a like diversity hire and it sucks like that feeling sucks because you're just like you show up and you're excited and stuff and you realize oh like I was here to like fit into something and- totally I'm here to give you points for you to win points because I'm here yeah. And you notice that when like people try to like squeeze you into their box instead of allow you to be as big and bright and take up the space that you can command in a lot of ways, that's why I believe it's so important for us to like produce our own stories, to start our own storytelling companies, for us to collaborate more and to be more connecting as storytellers and realize that there's not only is there value in that, but something that I said early on in the series, this huge miracle that happened when I was uncovering my own familial history. But storytelling is a form of justice. And I have seen with my own eyes in the last couple of years how telling the story of my family has brought a sense of closure and healing and also uncovered facts about actual political events that happened. And I'm specifically referring to this story that I opened up the series with, which is that in 1986, President Reagan conducted an airstrike in Libya, where my family is from, and in an attempt to kill the dictator Muammar Gaddafi, and he, they ended up hitting an apartment complex that killed five of my family members. In like telling this story and asking questions around this story that I literally ended up meeting by a miracle while speaking at Harvard University, one of the people in the audience, I mentioned this story and she got up and she shared that she actually stood in my family's apartment building the next day after the bombing. And she was a reporter at that story. And she she found the story that she wrote and talked about how hard it was to get it published and gave my family closure because she was there to see things that they weren't able to see. It just starts with like you asking questions about yourself and about your family. And then you realize the interconnectedness in how these stories actually 
paint the picture of your of the rest of your life around you. Time for a quick break. We'll have more of my conversation with Nota Guri when we come back. Welcome back. Here's the second half of my conversation with journalist Nota Guri. And with Rep, your latest body of work, it brings to focus the current or the enduring misrepresentation of of Muslim Americans here in the US. What would you say are those principal mischaracterization stereotypes that still endure that you find most troubling? You know, it's easy to answer that because I can tell you like, oh, the oppressed woman, oh, the terrorist, oh, the like oil hungry Arab man, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm so uninterested in talking about that though, because that's like, we know these stereotypes and we know the tropes and we're all familiar with them. We've all engaged with them. We all laugh at the jokes. I even laugh at the jokes sometimes. At this point, I'm like, you know what? That was funny. Like sometimes it just... So what are you challenging with the show? I'm challenging. It's beyond stereotypes and tropes. It's actually about what is your personal relationship with the stories that are being told around you and with the stories that you tell of other people. I'm less interested in like where most people's minds go to when they think of a woman in a hijab or when they think of an Arab person or they think of a Muslim person or when we say the word terrorist, what we completely assume, because we have that conversation so much. And I personally don't feel the immediate change. I guess what I'm really challenging is, is asking individuals, what role do you play in this problem? It's less about what the result of the problem is and more about what role do you play in it? And so I had to ask myself, like, when it comes to the misrepresentation of Muslim people, what role do I play in this problem? What role do you play? I realized that I allowed myself to adopt a story of being a victim. I zeroed in on my own personal misrepresentation and how, like, even when I'm covered in a story or I'm interviewed for a magazine or whatever it is, like, I've never been satisfied with an interview because every time I read the story, I'm like, is that how they really saw me? Because there tends to be this like story of, oh, she like has gone through these experiences of misrepresentation and this harm has, uh, has happened to her and she wore the scarf and she still persevered. And I'm just like, but yeah, like bad things have happened to me and bad things happen to everyone, but I don't see myself as a victim, but I think I was because I would, I had people like ask me really condescending questions and and I realized like when sometimes I w- sometimes when I was being celebrated, it was still like almost passive aggressive. It was still like from this place of victimhood. Yeah. And I had this like moment where I started to realize, I mean, there's so many moments throughout my life, but I remember the last corporate job that I worked at my boss, I found out people were getting raises. Like my, my whole team had been getting raises and I asked for a raise and he was like, you know, like you're like the face of the company, though. I thought that that would be good enough for you. <laughs> I thought that would be enough for you. How condescending. And I remember I like completely broke down and I was like, oh, OK, cool. Like so this I'm starting to realize now, like this is how this is how I'm, I'm being seen. And so I like I let myself feel small for a long time and I let myself feel I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for the hijab or I wouldn't be where I am. Maybe I'm not as like great of a storyteller as I think I am. And then I started putting the reins in my own hands. 
I just knew I, I saw stories differently and I knew I saw, I saw journalism differently. I saw truth differently because of these experiences. And when I continue to ask myself, like, what role do I play in this problem? It's also, there are so many things. I actively choose not to tell stories about Muslim identity or Muslim people or Muslim representation because I never wanted to be typecast. So I would like, I mean, I spent four years investigating the sex trade in the US. And I, I mean, I love that series and stuff, but like I just actively would choose stories that had nothing completely the other way. I didn't ask the questions in my own family or in my own community that I would be bold enough to ask to a stranger, but I was still not asking them at home. Like there are these things that I'm still processing again, like why it's harder for me to talk about it. But I just like brought it all back to like, how can I change? How can I actively like go through growth and through healing? And does that actually make the difference? And honestly, my rep journey, which like started out with a very personal story and took me all over the world. It literally took me to different communities that I never thought I would relate to, that we have an episode where I interview 11 Japanese elders who were interned in camps during World War II. And at the end of our conversation, one of the elders literally said, I empathize a lot with what's happening with Muslims um, and what happened when Trump enacted the Muslim ban. She was putting these, like connecting these thoughts that I wouldn't have even done myself. And it made me realize like, you know, part of my role in the problem is like isolating stories and not realizing that every single one is interconnected if we allow it to be, if we give it the space to be. So that was really where, where it took me is like letting go of control, letting go of controlling a story, which I think that so many journalists do. And it's very trouble. It's just troubling because the more you try to control a story, the more you're projecting your own bias on it. Even though I believe objectivity is a fallacy, because I think that that's a different thing. But like, the more you're projecting your own story onto it, instead of giving stories the space to breathe and reveal themselves to you. And so I think that that was part of my problem as well. Is like I was controlling my own personal story of how I was being perceived because I wanted to be okay for whoever I was trying to get a job from or whoever I was trying to please with like my work. You blend the journalism with activism, wanting to affect change in, in real time. It is a blend, it is a melding that is uncomfortable for some, for some consumers of news, for other journalists. How do you navigate that, the journalism and the activism? Mm. Well, I don't call myself an activist, but from the beginning of my career, I was always called an activist. And I was, I used to be so offended by it because I even wrote a piece called Blurred Lines, Activism and Journalism. That was like maybe almost 10 years ago now. And I was offended by it because people were calling me an activist just because I wore the hijab. Like I was covering stories very objectively. I was doing like all of the journalistic ethics that I was taught by all of my white male teachers in journalism school. I applied them, but I was still getting called an activist. And I was like, this is like the worst thing that you can call a journalist because you're taking like, makes me feel less credible because that's, you're putting a bias onto the work that I do. So that's how I used to feel about it. And then I think that throughout my work, I, I really challenged like, what is this concept of objectivity? Can it actually exist? Because in order for something to be objective, there needs to be a standard, but that standard tends to be the perspective of cishet white men. Mm -hmm. So 
if that's who my news director was and I was pitching a story and they were like, oh, well, this isn't really like important for our viewers or this isn't like something we would cover. But I thought it was really important. That's already a bias in itself. Not saying that every story needs to get approved or whatever it is, but it's like being able to recognize that no one can fully be objective. And actually, if we embrace understanding our own biases and perspectives instead of pushing them down, you can produce a really thoughtful story that's very truthful and articulate and quote unquote balanced without it being an opinion piece, but a more powerful and impactful piece because humanity is at the center of it. Because I think that that's really what it comes down to. I quote in the second episode of Rep, I interviewed a friend and mentor of mine, the woman who taught me everything I know about radio and audio. Her name is Vildana, but she goes by Sunny. And she came to the U.S. when she was 13 as a Bosnian refugee. And Christiana Mampour reported on the genocide in Bosnia. And I remember in college reading a book about women in journalism. And Christian was quoted saying the importance of never drawing a false moral equivalence. And that's when like everything clicked in my brain where I was like, oh, that's, that is truth telling is being fair in your storytelling, but keeping humans at the center of it and never drawing a false moral equivalence. And if we can maintain that, then I think that that is actually the job of journalists. The job of journalists is building trust with people is giving the space for the story to reveal itself. That doesn't mean that we have to go out here and say like, well, this is what I believe. And I think that this person is right. I actually like completely suspended my beliefs of right and wrong while I was working with rep. I accepted that I wasn't going to find answers that ended in periods, that everything that I was pursuing was only going to lead me to more questions. And that that's it. That's literally it. I call it the quest of a question because of that. Like I embarked on this quest regardless of what the stories that were being told were, I think at the end of the day, what we were challenging is like, what is this notion of truth? And is there only one truth or does everyone have their own individual truth? And do we have the capacity to give space to those truths? What about when those truths are harmful to other people? How do we contend with that? And I'm still asking questions around all of that. But now I still don't call myself an activist. I just, I try not to call myself anything anymore. I tell stories and that's what I'm comfortable saying. But when people do mention activism to me, I really believe that my approach to telling stories is that of an advocate. In addition to moving between podcasts and documentaries and, and with your production company at your service, you also have the foundation, the ICU foundation that you run with your mother. Oh, I love ICU. ICU started when I was 14 years old. So literally like almost 15 years ago. And my mom met this woman who was a survivor of domestic violence and she had opened up a shelter and she was actually herself living in the shelter as well. And we asked how we could be of service. And she said like toiletry items and groceries. And so we started doing drives for toiletry items and my, and we started doing monthly grocery runs So we would just like get their grocery list. And my mom was like such a 
champ at Costco. She would like lug around. She still does this, by the way, like lugs around so many like carts and stuff. And this just became like this familial activity. The shelter was in Baltimore and we were in Southern Maryland. So we would make these trips up to Baltimore every month and deliver them. And it really evolved because uh, it's so funny. I never really wanted to be on social media. And my mom had a Facebook and Twitter before I did. And I would use her Facebook to like stalk my friends in school and like talk to them and stuff. And she like kicked me off her Facebook and was like, just make your own, please stop. Get your own. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I just don't like the idea of this, whatever. So I eventually did. And I decided that I wanted to use it for good deed opportunities. And so I would, every month when we were doing our grocery run, I would post these good deed opportunities. And I would say we were doing our grocery run and people that I knew were just contributing and it sustained our monthly grocery runs. And I called it a good deed opportunity because it was like, here is an opportunity for you if you want to take it. It wasn't, nobody was doing anyone any favors. It wasn't favors. If you want to be a part of this, this is an opportunity for you. And that really was like the philosophy of it. It was an opportunity for us to be of service. And I remember one winter, it was so cold. And my mom called me crying and was like, we have to do something about this. People can't be out here in the cold. And so we got the idea of doing these winter care packages, which are like these really hefty care packages that have hoodies and thermals and flannels. And inside there's like a hygiene kit and a snack bag and and toiletries and, and all of the things. And we would actively like go out into the community and pass these out. And we would ask them like, what do you guys need? Because I think that that's like, and whatever people ask about how they can do this in their own communities, I'm like, just go and ask people how you can be of service. For a while, our care packages didn't include toilet paper until we asked. And we found out that like toilet paper and socks are like number one on people's lists when they're experiencing homelessness. We asked this older couple what they needed. And the woman just looked into my mom's eyes. I remember this. It was so beautiful. She said, we just need to be seen. So we called the foundation, I see you in response to this woman. And then we became a 501c3 and we continued doing the winter care packages every season. And it's all literally donation on like social media. And it's been so cool because people have really just trusted us with this. And earlier this year, we opened up our first community pantry Amazing. in Prince George's County, Maryland. Yeah. And so my mom, that's like where she works out of now and she stocks it. So when people, whenever people need toiletries or food in the community, they can come through and we have it stocked. That's beautiful. This work that you're doing, you know, it, it's important. It's impactful, not just in the wider world, but I'd assume to you personally, how is it changing you? Oh my gosh, I'm completely transformed. I'm completely transformed. I mean, this year has been the biggest year of transformation for me, but also every day, like I said, like, and it's this active asking of myself, like, what do I choose today? What do I choose today? I really love this, like embracing the power of choice because it really strengthens everything that you believe in and everything that you stand in and the power that you stand in. I even say like, if there's something that I believe, like I choose to believe this because I recognize that not everybody believes it. Like, and there's power in saying, I choose to believe. I question everything. I give myself so much more grace. I feel a lot more deeply. I feel like I finally have found the community, like the community that I was looking for. After Rep, I started something called Rep Club. 
and it's 40 people around the world. And I wanted to like create this intimate group that it was kind of, it's kind of like a book club, but for rep. And every Sunday we meet after listening to an episode of the week. And it has been, I mean, the most phenomenal experience because it's everybody going on their own rep quest. And there are people from every country you can think of. Like some people are even actively traveling the world, finding their families. Like they've chosen to embark on this quest and people from completely different backgrounds and beliefs. And still we are all on this like vibration of understanding. And I realized like, oh, community is something that you can actively create and build. When I would refer to my community, I used to just like, it used to be like, I'm talking about like American Muslims or Arab Americans, but there's a lot of American Muslims I don't relate to. Like there's so much diversity even within that. So that's even in itself, like something that's evolving for me. And I realized, you know what? It wasn't until after Rep Club started that I was like, oh, this is the community that I've been looking for. So it's, so part of that transformation is that you don't have to be in this journey alone. And I felt even though I had such an amazing support around me, like when you have really big breakthroughs and you start questioning everything, you start questioning everything you've ever believed, which is what I'm actively doing right now. It can be like a very lonely place because you can start, your relationships start shifting because you're changing and you're evolving. And you don't have to go through that alone. You don't have to be alone in that. And there are people somewhere on the planet who are actively doing the same thing. And I have found a group of them and I, have so I mean I had never looked forward to Sunday mornings so much as I have. And so in this transformation I realized like that when you choose to let go of control, you choose to trust yourself to show up for yourself, the story writes itself more beautifully than you can think. And the characters show up in ways that you may not have anticipated. And I welcome all of it. I welcome everything now. Nutaguri, what a beautiful conversation. Thank you. Thank you for sharing so personally and honestly. Thank you. My conversation with Noor certainly left me with a lot to think about. Like Noor, I built my career on telling stories and trying to find the voices that weren't being heard by the mainstream. And I've learned that my greatest strength doesn't come from being unfeeling and completely neutral. As Noor said so beautifully, it actually comes from that ability to ask, what is the notion of truth? Instead of trying to erase ourselves, how can we let our identities and experiences guide us into a place of humanity and compassion? The mission of the show is to highlight individuals that have chosen to take the successful careers they've built and leverage them into real impactful activism. And sometimes, for the journalists among us especially, standing back feels safest particularly for journalists of color, who come from communities who get misrepresented all the time. We've got a trust problem between the media and the public, and it can feel like a risk to put ourselves on the front lines of social justice. But Noor reminds us that is exactly where journalists belong. She's doing the work of letting her instincts guide her into amazing discoveries and inviting us into powerful conversations about culture, about family, about racism and fear and the ways all of it limits us. Conversations that remind us that no matter what backgrounds we come from, we have critical things in common. We all deserve to be represented fully as we are, with no assumptions or attempts to force us into boxes. 
We all deserve communities built on mutual respect and understanding. You might find one of those communities through listening to Noor's podcast, Rep, available now. Thank you so much to all our listeners and thank you to our season sponsor, Mercedes-Benz. As always, check out the show notes for resources and learning materials from our guests. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasay on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasay. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasay. Our producers are Brittany Martinez, Taylor Williamson, and Chelsea Daniel. Our editor is Liz Smith, and our production assistant is Abby Dell. Guest booking by Mary Hollis Williams of Good Talent Lodge, and special thanks to Arella Productions. Take care, everyone. Until the next time, bye for now. <laughs>